Thank you for listening to a Christ-centered message from Grace Community Church. We are committed to proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology and trust that you will receive encouragement as we study today's passage together. Well, good morning to each one of you. We welcome you. Those who are joining online, we welcome you. Let's go in our Bibles. We're going to Nehemiah this morning, chapter 9. Nehemiah chapter 9. We have come through this section in Nehemiah's construction. The actual work project is finished. But rebuilding lives, that has just begun. This is Memorial Day weekend. And so on this weekend, we remember. We remember that there are many who gave all. This is not Veterans Day. We're those who served and we honor them. These are the ones who served and did not come home. And we remember them. We have freedom because many laid down their lives. As we think about our New City Catechism, it points us to our Redeemer, that he had to be fully God and he had to be fully man. For his death to accomplish on behalf of sinners, on behalf of humans, he had to be human. In order to rise from the dead, he had to be God. And this is what sets Christianity apart from every other belief system on planet Earth. And for that matter, wherever else you might go, if you're wealthy enough. As we come to Nehemiah chapter 9, and we think about the condition that our nation is experiencing and in the world right now, there are some who would would take 2 Chronicles 7.14 and they would say, well, this is the Christian's verse. It's not. It's written for us. It's not written to us. We're not the Israelites. And in this morning's text, in Nehemiah 9, we're going to get an overview, a, a bird's eye view of Israel's history. And my, my prayer is, is that God will use me. I can't reteach all of human history in one morning, or we would be here six hours or longer. But I do want to give you handles that when you're reading the Old Testament and you start to go through various laws and customs, that you actually have handles to begin to process that by. And then you're able to understand that that is not to me. I'm not an Israelite living near Moses or Joshua or a king or the prophets in Israel. I'm actually living in a different country in a different time. I live on this side of the cross. They lived on that side of the cross. When the temple was dedicated and where we've been spending the last few weeks, they're all gathered in Jerusalem. So they're in the place where that temple was dedicated and it was rebuilt when Zerubbabel came back on the first return. But it wasn't like Solomon's temple. And, and so even in Ezra, when they dedicated the temple, the older folks were crying they were weeping, and it, wasn't, it was not tears of joy. They saw what it was, and then they looked at it now, and they understood our sin, the damage our sin has done. And they were broken, and they were crying. The younger people who had not seen Solomon's temple, and they finally have a temple that is a rubble, they're rejoicing, like, yeah! We have a temple. This is awesome. We've been brought back. This is amazing. And the Bible says in Ezra, you couldn't tell who's crying and who's rejoicing and, and, and which it all melded together in one cheer, in one sound. When they said to Ezra in this study, they said, bring out the book in chapter 8. He brought out the book. And renewal and revival began to happen. Well, this is what Solomon said at the dedication of that temple years before, generations before. 2 Chronicles 7.14, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then the Lord says to Solomon that I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. And right after this verse is a promise to David, a, re, a renewal of the promise to David that his seed would forever reign. So when you think about those people, that here we are in Nehemiah 9, we think about they remember this was said, this was promised, along with all of the covenant curses that if we disobey, if we forget God, we're going to pay the price and so will our children. 
When is the right time to get right with God? Now. Exactly right, Pat. Now. Today. And I'm praying that as this word is proclaimed today, that wherever you are, whatever you're going through, that you have ears to hear. This message is for you. This message is for me. The Jewish calendar, and if you just hold your spot there in Nehemiah, maybe slide your bulletin notes in there, go back with me to Leviticus. You can have some bragging rights wherever you eat lunch and you eat with somebody else that went to a different church. Like, your pastor preaching Leviticus today? Oh, yeah, we did. We did. We went there. All right, Leviticus 23. The reason we're going here is it's going to come up on the screen. There's a little timeline here. The Feast of Trumpets, that was uh, in chapter 8, okay? And, and the scripture's not going to come up on the screen. Just this, this uh, snapshot, you're looking there at your Bibles. The Feast of Trumpets would have happened on the first day of the seventh month. So in Leviticus 23, in verse 23, and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel saying, in the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall observe a solemn rest, a memorial proclaimed with a blast of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work, and you shall present a food offering to the Lord. That was what unfolded on the eighth, uh, uh, on the eighth chapter in Nehemiah. So when they finished their construction, they were trying to meet this deadline, and they met it. They got their mission accomplished, and the trumpet sounded, and people gathered together, and we went through chapter 8. Then if you remember in chapter 8, on the second day, they gathered after this day, they gathered and they said, bring out the book. And they were in great confession and mourning. On the 10th, which is not recorded in Nehemiah, on the 10th day of the month is the day of atonement. That's there in Leviticus 23, continuing on. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, now on the 10th day of this seventh month is the day of atonement. It shall be for you a time of holy convocation, and you shall afflict yourselves. That's the idea of fasting there. We're going to see this. And present a food offering to the Lord, and you shall not do any work on that very day, for it is the day of atonement. To make atonement for you before the Lord your God, for whoever is not afflicted on that very day shall be cut off from his people, and whoever does any work on that very day, that person I will destroy from among his people. You shall not do any work. It is a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwelling places. It shall be to you a Sabbath of solemn rest, and you shall afflict yourselves. On the ninth day of the month, beginning at evening, from the evening to evening, you shall keep your Sabbath. Shall you keep your Sabbath? So that day is unmentioned in Nehemiah. But this would lead to why, how did they get to such a place of conviction and a renewal and a desire to please the Lord? And this is the backdrop to this. Now, on the 15th day of the month, there in Leviticus 23, in verse 33, there's the Feast of Booths. This is what we've been dealing with. This is where they were supposed to. So this was all in the Word. So somewhere the preaching convicts them, we're not doing this. This is serious, and we've been missing out on this. In verse 33, Leviticus 23, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, speak to the people of Israel, saying, on the 15th day of this seventh month, and for seven days is the feast of booze to the Lord. On the first day shall be a holy convocation. You shall do, not do any ordinary work. For seven days you shall present food offerings to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall hold a holy convocation and present a food offering to the Lord. It is a solemn assembly. You shall not do any ordinary work. These are the appointed feasts. So he goes on down through these, fe through these feasts. This uh, feast is also known as the Feast of Ingathering. Every seven years, the law would be read. So then we come back to Nehemiah 9, and we have a one-day interval in between where we were and where we're coming to, and it would have been a day of rest on the 23rd of the month. And then when we get to the 24th of the month, that is where Nehemiah 9 begins to unfold, and people realize we have unfinished business. Do you remember when they were convicted, they were weeping, they were mourning, they were grieving over their sin, and the word that came from the leadership was no more weeping, no more crying. We're commanded, bring food, let's share food, let's celebrate the goodness of God. Now they come to this day, and this is a day of worship. 
This is a day of renewal. This is the 24th of the month, and this is where Nehemiah 9 begins to unfold. This is where we are now. So the question that we want to answer from this text today is, what takes place when there's a renewed emphasis upon God, upon his word, and his work? What happens? When a people anywhere, whatever country you're in, whatever language they speak, when they say, bring out the book, and they get under the word of God, and they focus on the Lord, they focus on his word, and they focus on his work, and how do we respond to each of those areas? What happens? I believe we're seeing that happen in this congregation. I want to see more of that. We want to see more of that happen, not just in our congregation, but in congregations everywhere around this world. First of all, we see a prioritized community. That's the first thing that happens. These individuals didn't go back to business as normal. They didn't go back to life as, you know, I've got this and I've got that and I've got to be over here and over there. They said, we have to get back to the word. So there was a day of rest and then they come back. Verses one through five unfold just the backdrop to this day. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for, the, for a quarter of the day, three hours. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua, Bani, Cadmiel, Shebaniah, Bunai, there's a good one, Sherebiah, Bani, and Kenaniah. And they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Cadmiel, Bani, Hashabaniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pethiah said, stand up. And bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. What do we see here? A prioritized community. This is where we unpack what, what were they doing? What did they do here? What was going on? They worshiped together. This would have taken place approximately October 31st, day, Reformation Day. Isn't that fitting? October 31st, 445 BC. What do we see happen here? First of all, we see a humble attitude in verse 1. Scripture changed them. They came under the word, but they just weren't near the word. And there are a lot of people, loved ones, who are under the word, but they're not listening to the word. They're not devoted to the word. They've just been brought near, maybe by a parent or a grandparent, and they're just here. But the word of God is actually what is able to break into hardened hearts. And these people are being changed. They're humble and they're broken, just like James, the half-brother of Jesus, wrote in chapter 4, verse 10. He says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. That's always the way up, loved ones, is humble yourselves before the Lord and let him exalt you. 1 Peter 5 and, 5 and 6 says this, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So here's his application. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, his time, when he sees fit, how he sees fit, wherever, he may exalt you. You cannot be exalted. I cannot be exalted by grasping at it and getting it for myself. Not in a way that will last for all eternity. It may last for a few decades in lifetime, but it will not last for all eternity. But when I humble myself before the Lord, when I seek his face, when I seek his word, and I'm caring and concerned about his work, not just my plan, that's when things begin to change for me. And that's true for you as well. So what are they characterized by? They're characterized by fasting. That's what we see in Nehemiah. They're fasting. There's a longing for God. Their longing for God has surpassed their appetite for food. 
There are times that this is done individually. There are times that this should be done corporately. This is spiritual discipline here, and it doesn't obligate God. I went without a meal, now you owe me. That's not fasting. I went without two meals. Now you really owe me. Now that, that's human thinking. That, that falls very short from seeking after God. Try that with a person, you know. Hey, I cleaned up the table two times. Now you owe me, you know, whatever. No, it doesn't work. Then why were you doing what you were doing? To try to have one over on me? That's not worship. That's manipulation. When Jesus said in... Uh, his temptation, he quoted Deuteronomy 8.3, Matthew 4.4, 4, and he answered and said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. It's a spiritual discipline. As elders, we've been fasting on most Mondays, not all Mondays, in different ways. Last men's gathering, we invited men, join us. To congregation, join us. Do we see the need that is in our community and in our nation and in our world? Is it worth us missing some meals to replace that with saying, Lord, we need you? They were also characterized by sackcloth. What, what, this type of clothing was like, have you ever seen a burlap potato sack? That's not really what you want to wear. They're not going to advertise that as here, but that's what they were wearing. Why? Because it's to remind them, I'm hungry inside. My skin is, I'm in this just aggravating clothing. Why? Because I'm, I'm trying to understand this is what my sin is to God. Do I view, do I feel my sin this way? When David in 2 Samuel 3 mourned the death of Abner, he made a command in his kingdom. And everyone was wondering, like, did David really plot this? What kind of man is David? Is he like Saul or is he different? In 2 Samuel 3.31, then David said to Joab and all the people who were with him, tear your clothes and put on sackcloth and mourn before Abner. And King David followed the bier. He went through the procession. And Israel looked at their king and he, they looked at how someone who had been unfaithful was treated and regarded and respected. Now, couldn't our politicians use a little bit of this? Couldn't we use a little bit of this before we make the next post we make on social media? That when people saw that man was on, not faithful and not loyal to the king, and the king is grieving over his death, he's brokenhearted over his death, that's a good king. And he won the heart of the people as if he could do no wrong because they realized this is a genuinely good king. And he had his, he had his, his faults as well. They also had ashes on their head, earth on their head. This was a visible sign of mourning and sadness. There are some traditions that will put ashes uh, you know, on your forehead, which Jesus said, don't do if you're fasting, if you're mourning. Don't let that be known to all men. Don't do it for the purpose of people seeing you. But this is a sign, and this actually happened when Jonah went and he preached in Nineveh. The news made it all the way to the king. I mean, the sorriest message ever, shortest message ever. I could make a case on short messages aren't all that great, maybe. <laughs> Repent or perish, you're going to burn. That was his message in a foreign land. He hated those people. They were nasty people. Think of ISIS, they're like them. He didn't want to preach to them. But when the word, Jonah 3.6, reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself, and sat in sat, he sat in ashes. The king, the king got off his throne and he went into ashes. So we see here their humble attitude. We also see holy actions in verse 2. They separated themselves from sin, all that dishonored God. There was a problem in Israel, and it's a reoccurring problem in Israel, that they, it goes all the way back to when Balaam was brought to curse the Israelites, and he said, no, I can't go, no, I can't go, no, I can't go, okay, I'll go, whatever God says, and he goes, and he gets there, and he looks over them, and he pronounces blessing, 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 and then he says, here, if you want to get them, 
Just let them get close to them and they'll marry your daughters and that's how you'll win their hearts to your idols. And it worked. A constant problem. In Egypt, they were isolated for 400 years. Egyptians, didn't remember what it says when Joseph came? He didn't eat. He didn't eat with the Egyptians. They didn't like Israelites, these Hebrews. And so there was this separation and God put them for 400 years, if you will, off to the side where they couldn't marry because no one would marry them. They wouldn't marry anyone. They were detestable to the Egyptians. And 400 years, they become a nation delivered out of Egypt under the hand of Moses. But this is a reoccurring problem down through their, their time. Ezra dealt with this. Now Nehemiah is dealing with this. That they just like, what, what's the big deal? I'll just, you know, connect up in marriage to somebody who does not share Yahweh. We don't have the same belief. What then do you have similar from there on out? Paul would write to the Corinthians in the New Testament about this very same thing. 2 Corinthians 6, 14, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Do you see what he's doing? If you have two individuals and one has been called from the darkness into the glorious light and they fall in love with someone who is still a child of wrath, what do they have in common that is eternal it confuses everything, and if you marry, and then children come along, and now you have a divided home. You have one headed to darkness, one headed to light. So Paul says, don't do that. This is all the way back to the Old Testament. They constantly did this. And so here, they separated themselves because they kept doing it. They kept marrying. Remember Solomon? He just kept entering into marriage with foreign Foreign princess after foreign princess after foreign princess. And what happened? His heart chased after all of these women and all of their gods. It didn't fare well in his descendants. We also see an honest acknowledgement in verse 3. When we honor the word, you know what we're going to also do? We're going to admit our own failures. When we get honest with who God is and what his word had said, has said, then we're going to be honest about who we are. And that is, we're not going to make much of ourselves, and I'm really awesome, and nor am I going to be on the other ditch where I'm worthless, I'm no good, I'm horrible, and, and I need to, you know, inflict more pain on myself for God. No, it doesn't. It's, those are extremes. When we honestly acknowledge who God is and what his word has said, then that's where we rightly understand so this is where my value is. I'm made in the image of God. That's value. And it doesn't matter what anyone says about me. You can't add to that value and you can't take away from that value. They received the word and then they responded to the word. The word of God was read for three hours and then they went into confession for three hours. I wonder if when it comes time to prayer at the end of small groups or when you're praying with someone, if it just starts to get a little uncomfortable after you've been praying for a few minutes. This is long beyond, Lord, help us to have a good day, help us to be safe, help us to have fun, help us to all of those. This is where it starts turning over the heart and you're doing heart work and you begin to realize there is so much to be done here but he's faithful and he began a good work in me and if you know Christ in you and he'll finish what he started, thank the Lord for that because I quit too much. <laughs> then we get to the highest ascent and this is in verses four and five. This is where the choir gets fired up. This coincides with our Psalms of Ascent from two summers ago, which are all online. You can watch all of those sermons. And we talked about the different stairs that the Levites would be on. Now they're back. The Levites get back on these stairs, these steps, and they're, they're calling out, they're, they're crying out, they're inviting people, commanding people, exhorting people, worship this God. So there's a connection here. that The way up is worship. The way out of whatever it is you struggle with is worship. Our sin is always a worship problem. It's the wrong thing in the driver's seat in our lives. The way out is worship. 
And so those steps would signify the way up. Lift your eyes up. Lift your head up. Let's worship together. It's a call to worship in this prioritized community. I will keep echoing the call. Guard your schedules. Guard your schedules. Let the place of worship on the Lord's day, let that be known in your heart and in your family. This is the Lord's day. That does not mean that there is not time to get away and vacation and rest. Yes, there is. But be careful and guard this day so that one day doesn't turn into a month of Sundays, which turns into a half a year gone by. Well, it's been a while. Guard your heart. Guard your calendar. A prioritized community. Secondly, we see an authentic confession. This begins to unfold. Now, what is it that they said? Well, the Levites have prepared a prayer. And they begin to offer this prayer. And in their prayer, they're simply saying, you're glorious and we're guilty. They're going to talk about their history as Israelites, but they're part of that history. So they're not just speaking bad about prior generations. They're saying their problem is our problem. But look where the confession begins in verse 6, that it's a look up, that God is to be worshipped as creator and sustainer, question two, of everyone and everything. That's where they begin. Now you say, well, why would they have to go all the way back to creation? Because they've just come out of foreign lands. And the foreign lands have all types of creation stories, but they don't have the creation story, and Israel does. There's foreigners that are there saying, what's all this camping going on? What are you guys doing? What are you talking about? So when they begin the presentation of the gospel and confession, they go back to creation. We're united. We're all part of the same family, and God created it all, and this is the God that we worship. He created it all, and he sustains it all, and he still is doing so today. Look at verse 6. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth, and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them. The host of heaven worships you. You see where they begin? It's, it's a look upward. They're, they're lifting up their eyes. Don't we need that? When we look at the news and we understand the brokenness, where do we go? When you hear people offering all types of opinions of what the problem is, where do we as the people of God go? We need to go somewhere higher than my opinion or anybody else's. This is where they go. They go up. They begin with God, that he is glorious. This is where all prayer should begin. Begin with God. This is reverence. This is adoration. This is worship. This isn't self-centered, selfish prayer. This is God-centered prayer. Very similar, if you want to jot down Psalm 106, Ezra 9, Daniel 9. And here we are in Nehemiah 9. Similar prayers. Confession. It's actually where Nehemiah prayed in chapter 1. We studied that a few weeks ago, all right? Now we also see they look back. They look back and they also look within. That this creator, this sustaining God, he has called us. He's made a covenant with us. He keeps covenant with us. He sustains us. So they look back at their history and they're saying this, we're guilty. Our fathers have sinned. Now this is very similar to when Peter preaches, when Stephen preaches and they're so hateful to him and Saul holds all the garments and they stone him. He's actually almost praying and preaching this, their history. And they hated Jesus when he reminded them of their history. 
In verses 7 through 8, we're just going to walk through Israel's history. In verses 7 through 8, we see that that Abraham was called. And it starts off with Abram. He was called, and he was just a heathen. He wasn't doing anything special. He wasn't impressing God. But Abram is called, and God gives him a covenant, and then God changes his name and gives to him a promise of a seed, of a land, and a perpetual people. In verse 7, it says, you are the Lord. The God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You ever walked up to anybody and tried to change your name? Hi, I'm Brian. Hey, I'm, I'm Bob. Bob, no longer shall you be called Bob. You will now be called, you know, Ralph. 911. <laughs> this guy's lost it unless you have authority. This is authority. Who, give, who gave you the authority to change my name? Well, that's what God did to Abraham. It says, you found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Chebusite, and the Girgashite, and you have kept your promise for you are righteous. Keep in mind as we're going through this how they pray and they keep saying, you are fathers. You, but we. Okay, there's a huge contrast here. Abram was called. Name was changed. In verses 9 to 10, we see Moses. He is sent. These people are in Egypt. Verses 9 and 10. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers and you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. This is a great deliverance that happened. That in the Exodus, God defeated Pharaoh and his army drowned. Then it comes to the Red Sea in verse 11. It comes to the Red Sea. They're still looking back. They're moving through Israel's history. And you divided the sea before them so that they went through it in the midst of the sea on dry land. Can you imagine that? An army behind you, a sea in front of you, the sea parts and you walk through and it's dry. You ever been on a riverbed? You really don't want to drive there. They walk through on dry land. And they're thinking the whole time, our God commands water, air, land. And the Egyptians, after them. Well, what happened? And you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. They had no chance. Then they recall that the Lord was with them in a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire, that in the daytime he provided shadow over them, the cloud would be over them. At night there would be a pillar of fire over them, providing light, providing heat that you would need in the desert. When it was time to move, those pillars would move and they would pack camp, break camp, and they would go. Verse 11, or verse 12, by a pillar of cloud, you led them in the day and by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. That's significant. You need light. They're not wandering aimlessly. The Lord guided them. In verses 13 and 14, they come to Mount Sinai. And here they're recalling, you gave us the law. In verse 13, you came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. That sounds a little bit like Psalm 19, Psalm 119, all of the different terms for the word of God. And you, verse 14 says, made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses, your servant. Any 
These Levites remind them in their prayer, you provided for all our needs. In verse 15, you gave them bread from heaven, that's manna, for their hunger, and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in and possess the land that you had sworn to give them. Think about this now. Jesus claimed in John 6 to be the bread of life. In John chapter 7, the Feast of Booths is about to happen, and his brothers say, hey, big guy, why don't you get on up where all the people are if you're really something special and show up at the Feast of Booths? And their brother, their older brother Jesus says, it's not my day to die, but it might be yours. You see why they hated him? And then he made his way up. It's the Feast of Booze. It's the same thing. All those years, they're still waiting. They have been celebrating that since Nehemiah. It's revival. And then the one that is all pointing to comes, and they miss him. Most of them did. In John chapter 8, Jesus claimed to be, I am the light of the world. While they're celebrating and remembering the lights, and he guided us by his light, And Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. It was clear, and most of them missed it. Look at verses 16 and 17. Now we see their rebellion. You're supposed to go go into the land, go possess the land, but they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck. Now think about this. This is like a kid. You ever know this kid? (laughs) I would have never been this kid. A stiffened neck. What does this look like? Don't tell me what to do. That's that, that's that, might I say, little rebellious brat. Don't tell me what to do. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. And they stiffen their neck. This is what Israel did to God. And often, loved ones, as children, we can't see God, and so we take it out on mom and dad. No. Right? I want to be God. I want the world to revolve around me and my ideas. Newsflash, that's a really small world. There's a much bigger plan for your life than that. So here we are. They and our fathers acted presumptuously. They stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. Verse 17, they refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to slavery in Egypt. They rebelled. Instead of going into the land, 12 spies were sent, 10 came back and said, no, we can't do it. Joshua and Caleb said, we must go. Trust in the Lord. And those 10 died, and that generation died because of their lack of obedience to the Lord. Moses didn't even make it in. He got to see the land, but he didn't walk in the land. Well, what did the Lord do to them? Well, he didn't destroy all of them. It says at the end of that verse, but you, see the change here, are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. You did not forsake us. You're merciful. This God is merciful. God justly could have destroyed him right there on the threshold of Canaan, but he didn't. He showed them mercy. And when Jonah went to preach, and he just did a lousy job, but he brought the word of God, and repentance happened in Nineveh, and then in chapter 4, Jonah went out on the hillside, and he sat, and he was waiting on the barbecue of the Ninevites. And instead, they repented, and fire didn't fall. And listen to what Jonah says to the Lord. Jonah 4.2, and he prayed to the Lord. Okay, this is an example of how not to pray. Okay, this is most likely Jonah recorded this and did what I appreciate and then it helps me believe the Bible is because he didn't say, well, I was up there praying and of course I wanted revival because I'm just a man of God. He writes it like it really happened, which he's telling the story of the Ninevites deserve judgment, but so did I. Look at, look at me, what a... 
loser of a prophet I was. And God was patient and merciful with them. And I'm writing this, God was patient and merciful with me. And he prayed to the Lord and said, oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. You see what he's doing? I went the opposite way. That, I'm telling you, this is why. I have a case here, God. For I knew that you are a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. I knew you'd forgive them. So I didn't want to come preach to them. Don't get a, you don't want a pastor like that. Like, what's the point anyway? Nobody will even listen. They'll all play with their friends and they won't even listen to me. But you, God, you're gracious and you're merciful and you're slow to anger. And Jonah came to the point where he realized, and you are that way, you are that way with me. And I was holding you as guilty for not judging them. What a, I was putting myself in the place of God. I thought I knew better than God. Surely none of us have ever thought this way. That's going on right now. If there is a God, then why this event? Why that event? Why the other event? And who is the deceiver and the destroyer, the thief who comes to kill, steal, and destroy, that is just taking in people by, their, by, their, by the millions? To hate this God that you are made in the image of. There's one who hates you because you're, we, our, our, our physical body preaches there's a creator. We're made in his image. There's value there. So again, I'll say it. Satan is doing everything he can to destroy, in, destroy individuals, their identity. Just let them live in confusion. That destroys them. To destroy the family, let that be in confusion. It destroys a nation. Let churches be in confusion because they don't ever open the book and seek to apply it in their lives or prioritize it. But God is merciful. He's merciful, and he forgave Israel. Now he brings up another occasion. There they are at the side of Mount Sinai. They're at the foot of the mountain. In verses 18 and 19, they made this golden calf. Even when they made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and it committed great blasphemies. You, in your great mercies, did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. And they deserved the Lord to desert them. All that happened in Egypt, and there's Aaron. Ah, we don't know what happened to old Moses. Come on, Aaron. We need something to worship. Oh, give me all your gold. Okay. And what does he tell Moses? It wasn't me. I mean, we just put all the gold in the furnace, and voila, there's a you know, golden calf. It just happened. It wasn't me. It was the people. Okay, Saul. Same attitude. Not my fault, Jonah. Not my fault. I told you you'd forgive them. Do you hear this coming up in our own thinking? It wasn't me. It was you. 40 years, the Lord sustained them. He gave them his good spirit and bread from heaven. Look at verse 20. He didn't abandon them. He didn't get tired of them. There are times when he was ready to. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. You see that verse, how it connects with man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. You gave them both. You gave them both. 21, 40 years, you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. That's what they would have talked about in the, in the tents, in the booths. Yeah, 40 years, we were living just like this. We were temporary, and our clothes, your ancestors' clothes, they never wore out. They never needed new shoes. Now, that would be every husband's dream right there. We just bought one pair of shoes, and we're good, right? <laughs> clothes, you name it. Tires for your car, one pair, that's it. One set, that's all you need. Verse 22, you gave them kingdoms and peoples. 
And you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. He multiplied their descendants. Whole generation died, but that wasn't the end of them. Verse 23, you multiplied their children as the stars of heaven. That was the promise to Abraham. And you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. And that generation said no, but the next generation under Joshua said yes. And they went and God delivered. And you gave them this land, verses 24 and 25, under Joshua. So the descendants went in and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand with their kings and the peoples of the land that they might do with them as they would. In verse 25, they captured fortified cities in a rich land and took possession of houses full of all good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. Hmm, so what happened? So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Look, wouldn't that have been great if it just ended right there? The Lord is good. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He's provided. But it doesn't end there because they rebel and they simply forget God. That's why Jesus said, when you come together, remember me. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, remember me. Do this in remembrance of me. Loved ones, we are too quickly to forget the goodness of God. So what happened? Verse 26 down to 29. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back. You see the imagery there? Just throwing it out. And killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you, and they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you, and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. That's all in the book of Judges, the time of the Judges. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you, and you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. And you warned them in order to turn them back to your law, yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which, and here's Psalm 1911, if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. No. Throughout Israel's history, there would be a cycle. There would be rest we're in the land, there's rest. And they would forget God and they would rebel. And then the prophet would come and preach repentance and they would repent and they would be put into great trial and trouble. And they'd say, send a savior. And the Lord would send a savior. They would be delivered and they would go into rest and they would go right back into the cycle. But every time it would go down, down, down. When you read the book of Judges, you can picture, you know, things in the grocery market and you put a coin in and you watch it go down, down until it just drops out at the bottom. That's the book of Judges. That's Israel. They consistently just went down and they deserve judgment. They deserve to be punished. And now in this last section of this prayer in verses 30 to 31, we see that they were put into exile, but they weren't ended. They were exiled, but they were not ended. Verse 30, many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets. That re that's a reoccurring theme here. Yet they would not give ear. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them for you are a gracious and merciful God. This is all authentic confession. This is what they're doing. You're right, we're wrong. 
Then it leads to desperate cries for help. And we see this in verses 32 to 37. They had experienced the heavy hand of God. They had experienced throughout their history the helping hand of God, that he is, as we've sang this morning, a good father to his people, and they are drawing, returning, going back to him. So what does that look like when you cry out to God for help? Maybe you're there today. Maybe this is where you need to desperately cry out to the Lord for help, and you need to know that our God hears. The creating, sustaining, covenant-making God, he hears and he cares and he responds. They're desperate. They, They begin with, we give you praise. You're good. You're good. We praise you. You're faithful. We've been unfaithful. You're the covenant-keeping God. Look at verse 32. Now, therefore, our God. Now, now it's been all that, that Israel, Israelite history, and it comes down to where they are in this day, and they say, now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. There's the the marking of the exile. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us. I'm just wondering, can you say that? When suffering comes, when judgment comes, do we respond with, Lord, you are righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. There's honesty. There's humility. Verse 34, our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them even in their own kingdom and amid your great goodness that you gave them. And in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. This is just an honest recital of this is our history. This is why we're here today. And it was, see, here's what they thought. Israelites thought, is our God on the par of everybody else's God? Why are, why are bad things happening to us? And they forgot, we've not obeyed his word. We have not been faithful in covenant. And we were told and told and reminded that if you go against this God, he will ruin you. If you come to this God, he will receive you. I don't like that. I want to be God. Now you hear it. Now you see your neck is stiffening. Who is this God? The one who gave you life the one who gave his son for you because your sin and my sin has separated us from his holiness and we can't, we can't stand in his presence, but he's made a way. So then they come to this, hear our prayer, hear our petition. We need your deliverance, okay? We give you praise, you are just, you are right. There's none of this nonsense about if God was good, then let him come into my courtroom and I will condemn him or I will acquit him. Oh no, he speaks and galaxies come out of his mouth. And he's been patient with you and he was patient with me and he was patient with them. Do you hear this, the goodness and the patience and the mercy of God? And they were taking it for granted and they were, they were accusing him of being weak. They were weak and indifferent. And all too often I am. So Lord, hear our prayer. We need you to deliver us. We need your salvation. Verse 36 says, behold. Okay, so that's, that's look. Okay, that's when a, a little grandbaby or a little child to their parent says, look at me, look at me. And they get the parent's face like, look at me. That's what they're doing. They're saying, behold, look on us, look. Look at our situation. Behold, we are slaves this day in, a land, in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good, good gifts. Behold, we are slaves. And its rich yield goes to the kings whom, we have, whom you have set over us because of our sins. Do you, do you hear that they're acknowledging the sovereignty of God? You set 
Nebuchadnezzar over us. You sent Assyria to take away the northern 10 tribes. You raised up Darius. You made a way for us to come back. We're guilty. You are righteous. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. That's where they are. We're slaves. See our position? We're in bondage to a foreign nation. They rule over us. Take notice of our problem, O Lord. And then the religious leaders of Jesus' day, you remember what they said in a, in a smart aleck, kind of just off-the-cuff way? They hated Jesus. They hated his message. And so they just threw something at him. In John 8, verse 31, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. It carries on today. My sheep hear my voice. If you love the word of God, if you draw near to the word of God, if you love God, then you actually want to keep and obey what he has said. And Jesus says in verse 32 of John 8, and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. They answered him. This is the religious leaders. We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? They're paying taxes to Rome. They're right then in bondage to Rome. They don't have a king. They still don't have a king, a human king. Messiah king came, lived the life we can never lived, never live, died the death that we deserve to die. They buried him. He rose again. He's victorious over Caesar and over every other king. He reigns. And they're saying, what have we ever been enslaved? <laughs> Loved ones, they knew their Bibles. They didn't forget Egypt. They didn't forget Assyria. They didn't forget Babylon. They didn't forget Persia. They didn't forget all of this. They hated Jesus. They hated his message. How dare you tell me that I need to bow my life to you, you carpenter from Nazareth? Listen to what they say. We're in great distress. Come rescue us. We're in great sorrow. You know what they're saying? Save us. Hosanna, save us. We need to deliver. Rescue us. And that leads them into a wholehearted commitment in verse 38. And this is the threshold. This is the threshold that goes into the covenant of chapter 10. This is wholehearted commitment. This is a renewal here of keeping covenant. Just like it happened in Exodus, there at Mount Sinai, now the exile, and now they're here in Jerusalem. And what are they saying? We acknowledge our situation we acknowledge our situation. So verse 38, because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. We acknowledge our situation. We're here because of all this. You, you don't hear any blaming of God. You hear only we deserve, but you have been good to us and we're in distress. Look on us. Look on our situation. We are turning our attention to you just like you told through Solomon us to do. There's nothing hidden. There's nothing unknown to God. They're not blaming God anymore. Finally, they're coming to a point of understanding. He's not weak. He is merciful and patient. He patiently dealt with them and loved ones. He patiently has dealt with you and with me. Let that sink in. Peter says, 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Think about this as news stories unfold week by week by week by week. And people say, if God, then he, and he is patient. And if he were not actively sovereign and present in our world, there wouldn't be enough it, it would be endless of the of the brokenness and the sinfulness that's in our hearts. And in this land and in this world, it's his light and his restraining grace that holds it back. 
And one day that will come to fruition and he will not hold it back anymore. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to stop from going accusing and blaming God to falling on your face and repenting before him and receive the gift of his son that was crushed in your place and in my place for all who will believe him. So this is what they do. They say, we acknowledge our situation and we give you our, what's this, a universal sign of? Surrender. Hands up. This is what they're saying. We're here. You know us. They didn't just give this big impressive, we always tried and we always were, you know, we, we did better than the mother nations. They said, we're guilty. So here we are and we're about to engage and enter into this covenant and we're signing it and we need renewal. Maybe you're in that place this morning. They were declaring for themselves. We weren't there at Mount Sinai. We weren't there when we were supposed to go into Canaan and the 10 said no. We weren't there when we were carried away into exile, but we're here now. We're hearing your word now. And personally, we're responding in surrender. That's wonderful if your parents love the Lord. That's wonderful if your parents and your grandparents surrendered to the Lord. But what about you? Are you holding back? Are you holding out on this God when he has been patient with you? When he has loved you with an everlasting love and sent his one and only son? Why would you hold out on this God? Why would you not surrender to him? And Paul says this, quoting from this area of the Old Testament, Romans 10, verse 8, but what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be. This is what they're crying out. We're in distress. We need to be rescued. We need to be saved. For with the heart, verse 10 says, one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. That's our greatest problem. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between the Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. Do you hear what he wants to do? All of the riches of Christ, that's what Romans 8 says, I've already given you the best, Jesus, there's nothing more to give. And in Christ, we, we receive all the right standing and all the riches of God. That's not because we've done anything good. It's because he is good and he is faithful and he loves to receive and redeem, but he cannot and he will not receive the stiff neck. No, I will do my life my way. There's hell to pay for that but you don't have to because Jesus suffered under the wrath of God. That, 13, whoever calls, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, say it with me, will be saved. So my question is, have you done that? Look at the picture of, of this group, right? What happens? When renewal takes place, look at what happens in this community. You see a prioritized community. You see authentic confession the summary will come on the screen. You see desperate cries for help and you see wholehearted commitment. Does this define you? Does this describe you? Does this describe us as a church? Are there any areas in this picture that we are resisting? Well, I'll take three of the four. Yeah, give me two of the four. No, this is what it looks like to be renewed. Is this you? Does this describe you? Maybe it hasn't up to today, to right now, but it sure can if you will heed the word that's been spoken to you today. Turn from your sin. Surrender all to Christ. Will you stand with me? We're gonna pray and we're gonna get to enjoy someone making a public statement of faith and baptism. Maybe that's you. What's your next step? How can we help you take that step? Father, thank you for your word. We cannot comprehend 
the blessing that we are holding the word of God. The word is near us. The word has come in the flesh, and it's Jesus. Oh, God, I pray for anyone who's never turned from their sin and trusted in you that today would be the day of their salvation, that they would simply surrender and say, God, just like these Israelites, I admit I've sinned. I've broken your commandment. I haven't put you first in my life. I put me first. So I confess my sin and I confess Christ as Lord and I give you my life and I'm thankful for the promise that all, every single person who calls on the name of the Lord like this will be saved. So do your work today and will you remind us who belong to you who are in Christ of the glory of our salvation, of the goodness of you, our God, and how merciful and how patient that you have been with us for our whole lives. And we can trust you with our future. We can trust you with today. And then God, use us as your people to bring renewal, to bring revival to our community, to our nation, to our world. God, we are desperately, desperately in need of you. And you have placed us here as salt and light. So Father, I pray that you would renew us. That we would not play games at the foot of the cross, but there would be holy surrendered saying, here we are. Use us for your honor and for your glory and the good of all peoples. And we pray this in the good and glorious name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Thank you again for listening to Teaching from the Word at Grace Community Church. We are located in Richmond, Michigan. You can find us online at mygracechurch.com. Please subscribe and follow us at My Grace Church. It would be greatly appreciated if you would take a moment to rate, like, and share this message. We want you to always remember that you are loved.